Thursday, the 26th of November, 1.30pm here in the knee of Sid. Thank you for joining me live. I think the audio is working. I don't need these ridiculous cans. Mind you, if you are thinking about getting a pair of headphones that you could take to a nuclear holocaust and come back with them intact, the Audio-Technica ATH-M50s are virtually indestructible. These ones have been... I've worn these for thousands of hours in radio studios and places like that, and... They're awesome, so there's that. If you're after a good pair that you could probably also beat someone to death with that are the exact opposite philosophically from a set of ear pods. Now, I want to talk to you about Carnival versus versus and versus Palisade today, which is uh, a question that I get all the time, and I guess understandably because the launch of both of those vehicles, we're kind of on the cusp of that, aren't we? And a lot of people are trying to decide one or the other, and I'd suggest there's a great many similarities there. I'll try to drill down into that into some, in some depth for you, and, you know, feel free to ask me anything in the chat while we're talking about that, and then I'll just, as usual, throw it over to you, and we'll handle some questions from you. So I also want to thank you for your interesting feedback on my uh, video on those Olight torches. Many of you correctly I think told me that in Australia we say torch and not flashlight I've always said flashlight is it a big deal probably not so there's that and uh, do let me know if anything else falls over in the chat as well won't you because uh, I can't tell for example if the audio falls over so there's that you could help me out there uh, Herbal says I like turtles thanks for the critical turtle update there Herbal. Might want to lay off the herbs, son. Just saying. Anywho, uh, in relation to that Olight flashlight uh, review, I'm just calling up the stats now. This is uh, this is kind of hilarious because it's just what I always wanted. I have actually had my likes to dislikes drop to 83.3%, which means that one in 12 of those of you motivated to feedback uh, in that way, thumb up or thumb down, nailed the thumb down button. So I must have hit a nerve there. Many of you said to me, I have sold out because I earn a commission if somebody clicks on the link and buys a flashlight off the back of that. Dude, grow the hell up if that was you. Uh, I got many comments like that. And the media is a business, okay? People like me, we work in the media and we expect to make a living out of it. So knock me down with a feather. I'm here recommending products all the time, okay? Most of them are cars. Most of them are products that cost 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 bucks. And if you don't like me doing that, then way to go. Arc up over a friggin' flashlight. Those flashlights, which the review went live yesterday, they are awesome. And if you're not carrying one in the car, you're a nut because if something goes wrong, it doesn't matter what it is, a breakdown, someone tries to mug you, whatever, or you just want to help someone else. You come across a crash and you want to help someone else. If you don't have a proper flashlight, then torch Australia, then, you know, you're a nut. So deal with it. And either you trust me to recommend decent products to you or not. And hey, that's a matter entirely for you. I don't care if you don't. Actually, I don't really care if you don't watch. You know, if you think I'm a nutbag and you don't want to watch, then don't watch. But I do like it if you do watch because there's not much point sitting here on my ass in the palatial fat cave talking to myself. I could do that without all the tech and the lights on attracting the bugs, etc. So anyway, with that in mind, let us get into the whole Carnival v. Palisade or Palisade v. Carnival thing. That's 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, both of these vehicles are going to debut early next year, okay? COVID-19, thanks very much. You know, the launch of everything has been delayed. So if you haven't seen it, the carnival kind of looks like this. And I think you'd agree that that is a substantial visual upgrade on the predecessor. And there was nothing wrong with the predecessor, but this new one is certainly distinctive. And I know many people think that a people mover is sort of the automotive equivalent of a discount vasectomy, but I would suggest that if you're going to make a box on wheels that big with the potential to carry like eight people, then there are already quite a few design constraints in the whole domain of aesthetics, all right? You've got to have it a big chunky box, otherwise eight people won't fit, so there's that. And this is not a bad execution in my view. I actually think this carnival looks slick and much slicker than the current one, and there's no nothing wrong with that either in my view. Anyway, so this is the Palisade by comparison, and to me it's a little bit of a departure at the front, particularly from Hyundai's current styling with their SUVs. It's it's much it's almost like a step back in time and a bit of a step away from the new Tucson and uh, new Santa Fe. So anyway, it's distinctively different at the front and boxy at the back, not unlike the rear of the Carnival. So just check out the rear of the Carnival there, get a bit of uh, mental uh, snapshot there of the rear of the carnival and now check out the rear of the palisade and once again I think you'd have to agree if you're designing a box that fits eight people inside with approximately three odd meter wheelbase and about five meters long these things are quite big then you are sort of locked into some fundamental design parameters and the rest of it is really just hair and makeup so in the domain of aesthetics i can't really help you it's like you know chocolate versus strawberry or blondes versus brunettes this is the uh, carnival once again from the rear and the carnival once again from the front just to round that out but you know frankly it really is that whole Chocolate v. Strawberry, blondes versus brunettes. Correct answers, chocolate, blonde, but, you know, let me know if I've got that wrong in the comments. Love to know what you think about which one is the best. And here's how it plays for me, okay? In the domain of attractiveness, there seems to be this real, real backlash from the market about buying a carnival, you know, or buying a people mover is a better way to put it. Carnival actually owns the people mover segment. It's way out in front, but it's a pretty small segment because of the absolute evisceration of glamour or attractiveness, cachet, whatever you want to call it, from that segment. People just view the, you know, buying a people mover is to many people an admission of defeat. And paradoxically, they're pretty damn good at moving people. Like if all you want to do is move a big family or a medium family and the friends of the friends of the friends of the kids, then a carnival is a great way to do that. And I've always said that it's very versatile, but it just does come with this stigma, doesn't it? You know, people just go, mm, people move it. Jesus, has it come to this? Whereas I think the Palisade could get away with you know, a little bit more cachet than that because at least it is a big chunky box and to me it doesn't look 
any less outrageous, at least like that in the black, which highlights the chrome on the grill and all of that stuff. It doesn't look any more outrageous than the LX570 with the maximum ugliness pack, although I don't really think Lexus calls it that, obviously. But in the domain of attractiveness, they're up there, okay? And they're big things. One of the principal differences, of course, is that the Palisade is going to offer all-wheel drive, and that's going to make a difference to you if you drive, I don't know, to the snow. Not that there is much of that in Australia, but if you do, then that might make a bit of a difference. And also, if you drive on unsealed roads from time to time, because the all-wheel drive system, which will be cloned straight from uh, Santa Fe, for example, it's really good, and it's just right for that kind of stuff. It's not a proper, hardcore, all-terrain four-wheel drive, but, you know, you can take it down moderate tracks and things of that nature. And if you're conservative about where you take it in that domain, you will come back without breaking it, and that's always nice. Carnival will obviously have a much reduced envelope of capability in that sort of environment, so perhaps that's something to consider. Obviously, the Carnival has weapons-grade access to the passenger compartment with those dirty big sliding doors on the side and they are very practical for many reasons like if you've got a tight garage it doesn't take much space to open the door and you're never going to biff the door when you open it on something so there's that to consider and the carnival comes out of the box as an eight-seater one of the best things about Carnival, in my view, though, is that you can remove the middle seat of the second row. And you've been able to do that for donkey's years. You just unclip it and lift it up and take it out and bug attack. I hate that summer. Australia. Uh, the cicadas are going off too today. So apologies if you can hear the chirping by six million cicadas just out there. But hey, what do I do about that? Insects v. Humanity. I think the insects will win, ultimately. The the, the big trick about removing that centre seat is you just unclip it, lift it up, take it out, and then you can walk through, okay? So this is so much better than your average seven-seater. You open the sliding door, in other words, and with that middle seat unclipped and in the garage, then your ageing parents, for example, who might be in their 70s or something, they can just step into the car and turn right or something and go towards the back and they don't have to climb over a seat and you haven't got to fold and flip the seat and do all of that kind of stuff, which is absolutely brilliant. And it takes about, I don't know, two or three minutes to clip that seat back in, in the few times when you need to carry eight people. And Really, that is pretty clever. The other good thing about Carnival is obviously four child restraint anchor points built in from the factory. So if you've been doing a lot of breeding, then, you know, and it's only been recent, then that's kind of comforting as well. And my understanding of the side airbags in the current model, and I doubt they will go backwards with this, is that they wrap right around all the way to the back and provide critical head protection all the way to the E-pillar or F, or whatever it is. Probably still E in a carnival. Anyway, you can count them, I'm sure. So that's all pretty good for the carnival, but the stigma is certainly there. With all the seats deployed and bums on them, there's still a lot of luggage space. And you can say that about the Palisade as well. A big difference with the Palisade, as I understand it, is that you have to specify whether you want the eight-seat model or the seven-seat model. So if you get the seven-seat model, you can walk through as you can when you unclip that center seat in the carnival, but you can never fit eight people to it because it comes configured two seats in the front, two seats in the 
the middle row and then three seats up the back if you order seven seats. So it's got four bucket seats and then a three rower at the back. And I think from memory, it's a split fold at the back as well. So you can kind of configure the luggage space to suit you. And that's really versatile too, because you can flip seats in different orders and carry really long things or really wide things. And that's great if you're renovating or doing something of that nature and you've got to get big boxes or something long home from Bunnings. It's really versatile in that domain. Now, when it comes to things like resale, I think they'll be roughly equivalent. And in terms of straight line performance, I think they'll be roughly equivalent as well because I'm tipping, although I haven't really got to the bottom of this and the specifications for Australia are not locked in. But I think it's going to be a, a mosquito biting the dust. Always kill something every day if you possibly can, just to remain operationally proficient. That's, that's an axiom to live by. I think it's going to be V6 petrol or 2.2 litre diesel and obviously front wheel drive only for the Carnival and all wheel drive for the uh, Palisade, okay? So I'm not sure about the all wheel drive petrol for the Palisade. This seems to be something that they are, you know, coming to grips with at Hyundai Motor Group Central and the V6 often cannot be packaged with the all-wheel drive system for right-hand drive, okay? So the specifications are not fully released yet, but frankly, I'd like to see the dudes at Namyang who do the product decisions for Hyundai and Kia just say, you know what? This The V6 petrol has had its day. It's a boat anchor. It's certainly a museum exhibit, and we've got this brilliant two-and-a-half-litre turbo petrol engine, which would do such a better job particularly at the mid revs so if they could just kindly bite the bullet and just bone the v6 forever and say thanks it's been emotional but it's not you it's us and it's over and just say from now on we're just going to run with the 2.5 turbo petrol engine in place of the v6 in these big fat four-wheel drives and people movers, then that would be a net plus for Australia and every other right-hand drive market because you'll get better fuel efficiency when you're not going for it and better overtaking potential when you are. And I get the feeling like it would be easier to integrate all-wheel drive on left or right-hand drive with all of those variants where it's needed. So that would be a net benefit to you and me, and at least it would expand the choice. I'd also like to see them get that 2.5 turbo petrol engine and jam it into the new Tucson at the top of the range, give you a real uh, halo car to aspire to there, and also do the same thing when we finally get out of the blocks with a new Sportage and kind of take the fight to Mazda, which seems to occupy the moral high ground on performance with its 2.5 turbo petrol Akira. And if you want to know what I'm talking about when it comes to 2.5 turbo petrol versus V6 Atmo petrol engines, then just have a drive of, I don't know, Sorento, something like that with a V6 petrol engine or Santa Fe V6, and then go and have a drive of an all-wheel drive Mazda CX-9 with the 2.5 turbo petrol engine. And I think you can see if you do that and you get enough time behind the wheel, I think you can see that it's a vastly superior integration. And the time of the V6 petrol engine is really past, in my view, at least in the automotive domain. 
resale value. Not really sure on that. I think they'd both be roughly similar. Believe it or not, people movers are fairly sought after in the used market and demand is what drives values there. And there's a bit of a spike there as well. So anyway, both of these vehicles should be debuted early in the new year, January-ish, I think. Hopefully we'll just get this Christmas insanity behind us and then we can forget all about 2020 as it departs in our rear vision mirrors and we can just get on with a whole bunch of new product, including the new Santa Fe, the new Palisade, the new Carnival, the new Subaru Outback. I'm looking forward to a 2.4 turbo petrol engine in that one as well, replacing the 3.6R. And I think although the 3.6R does have its diehard fans, as does Subaru. I mean, Subaru is just got these bolted on supporters they they want a new Subaru they don't want a new car they don't investigate the market they just go give me a new outback mate sort of thing you know so that's great for them but the 3.6 boxer engine in the top of the range outback I think it's had its day as well and the 2.4 four-cylinder turbo petrol botcher the botcher box boxer engine is going to be much better there as well when it finally lobs and I mean it's taking it's moving towards us at roughly the pace of a glacier so you know don't hold your breath but I hope they get that out of the blocks soon now that's about it all I've got for you roughly they're the same size carnival and palisade and I, I guess they they are more similar than they are different but there are some critical differences and if those things matter to you then you should carefully consider them before jumping one way and then seeing you know the Joneses across the road or something uh, parking in a the, the reverse proposition the palisade or the carnival if you bought the carnival or the palisade and you look over there and you think geez I wish I'd got that one so I'd hate to see that happen to you because these things do cost rather a lot of money and you'd want to weigh it up fairly carefully. If you are looking to jump early with this kind of thing, the default advice I give to people on all of this stuff is, hey, just give it six or eight weeks, will you? Like, launch of a new car, there's always a rush of customers and that always spikes demand and Dealers always go, you know what, we're not discounting now because we've got demand over the horizon, at least as far as we can see. And let's face it, dealers are typically fairly short-sighted in that respect, but you don't get a discount so much early on in the piece. And also, if there's a problem with anything, like an initial design kind of teething problem, then you're stuck with that and you've got to take it back to the dealer and get that sorted and wait for the software to be worked out or whatever. If you just give it six or eight weeks 12 if you can afford to wait then that's really the sweet spot for jumping in because you can get your brain around early adopters experiences you can get some first-hand impressions from people who've actually jumped in early and what that was like you can safely assume that many of the running fixes are in fact in place and those issues are fixed and demand has sort of gone over the hump and equalized again and dealers are starting to get a bit hungry and they're in a better position to offer you a discount or a better way of doing that a better way of saying that is that they're in a better position to cave in if you negotiate like you mean it a dealer's not just going to walk out onto the forecourt out of the showroom and fall all over himself and say here's your maximum discount that it just doesn't work that way what you've got to do is you've got to work for it, okay? You've got to push them. You've got to basically say, well, here's what I'm prepared to pay. If you can meet me at that, then great. I'll sign now. And if not, just going to walk down there and have a look at 
Hyundai or Kia or Mazda or whatever competing brand and see if we can do a sharper deal there. And they friggin' hate that. Walking out the door is the most powerful thing you can do from a negotiating standpoint. And let's not forget, you are an amateur negotiating generally, and the guy you are negotiating with, he's a professional. So you're already in the domain of asymmetric warfare and to level things up you know you just got to be a bit of a bastard it's not that hard we've all got it in us some of us it's closer to the surface than others i know but there you go so anyway that's what i would do in the lead up to christmas and the new year and waving goodbye 2020 once and for all thank christ for that that's how i'd approach carnival v palisade at this point i'd wait for some more data give it some breathing space and jump the way that absolutely suits you so let us jump into some of your questions right now maddie d says the step up in weight is the 2.2 turbo diesel becoming slightly anemic still more power than my 4.2 turbo diesel six cylinder land cruiser yeah yeah, the 2.2 diesel is obviously heavier, but I think they moved recently to an aluminium block for that to take some of that extra weight penalty away. The other, the other step up in weight, incidentally, if you're talking about things like Sorento and Santa Fe, is that the V6 is packaged only with front-wheel drive, and all of those all-wheel drive components weigh something, like you've got to have a transfer case to split the drive and you've got to have a prop shaft heading towards the rear and you've got to have a diff at the rear and two axles and things of that nature because the all-wheel drive doesn't work too well without that stuff. And that's also often why there's such a jump in price to go to the diesel when you're in V6 front-wheel drive territory because all those extra components cost money and it's not just a diesel engine versus a V6. And a lot of people fail to consider that. Keep your questions rolling in. There's a flood of the chat here. Shuhari now says 3.8 V6 is outdated. 3.8 V6 is that Opel GM engine, which is a 90-degree V6, which is just a travesty. It's like a V8 with the front two cylinders cut off. Who cares about the balance? Those engines are awful. They're like awful off the bat. Uh, Shuhari goes on and says, drove the Kia and Hyundai and its drivetrain is not even as good as the Volkswagen 2.0-litre turbo engine. Well, everyone gets their view on that. I actually think the 2.2 all-wheel drive engine with the epicyclic auto in the current Santa Fe is pretty slick and also the DCT in the Sorento. No, no complaints about that whatsoever. Huge step up in terms of refinement on that DCT, that eight-speed DCT in Sorento. And no sort of freewheeling, rolling back on a hill or any of that stuff. It's got really good drag. You know how automatics, like epicyclic automatics, just creep forward? Well, that dual-clutch transmission does that. I was very impressed with that. Um, Adrian Romano, intake cleaning, injector cleaning, and AC disinfection, forgetting the ridiculous dealer prices. Are these upsells worth doing, especially if you want to try to keep your car for 20 years and 300,000 kilometres? Okay, so 20 years and 300,000 kilometres is frankly unrealistic in my view because... 15,000 k's a year is a lot of cold starts and frankly most engine wear occurs during those cold starts all right so the engines that achieve high mileage tends uh, they tend to do that in like the 10 year term they tend to be things like taxis which never cool down 
because they never experienced that cold warming up kind of wear. All right. So you've got to consider that. I think 20 years is unrealistic. Jeez, it is bug day today, isn't it? Hashtag Australia. At least the bugs don't kill you so much in Australia. It's just the reptiles and the sea wasps and the snakes and the white pointer sharks and uh, the water buffalo and the top end and the crocodiles. So there's that. We get a free pass on most uh, insects. They're not too bad here. We had real drama the other day. We had our first snake on the balcony, big black snake. (laughs) The dog was quite interested in my normally quite timid 30-year-old daughter went into dog protection mode and we had some real drama. It was friggin' awesome. Just saying. If you're not from around here and you don't live in a country where, you know, it's absolutely unacceptable to step off the back step unless you're wearing, you know, steel cap boots or something just in case. You don't know what I'm talking about. And you wonder why we Aussies are so friggin' tough. Why not too many of us died of COVID? It's probably that. Uh, Where were we? We're talking about intake cleaning and injector cleaning. 20 years and 300,000 kilometres. Look, if you need intake cleaning because your intake tract in your engine is clogging up, then yeah, you need to do that. And the two approaches are disassembly and like do it really thoroughly, or you can use some of that inject in crap and then you know you leave it for whatever period of time and drive off down the road emitting you know copious James Bond-esque kind of smoke screen for a brief interval until all of that stuff is processed let's call it by your engine and the best way to tell is to just get a mechanic to jam a inspection camera down the inlet of your engine and have a look at how bad the atherosclerosis is. And if it's bad, then, you know, deal with it. But don't just do it because it dealer says it's a good idea. I'd want to see evidence because why clean the friggin' thing and pay for that if it's not dirty? That doesn't make sense. Air conditioning disinfecting. I don't know anybody who has ever become ill as a consequence of air conditioner in their car being sick. I just, it's not a thing as far as I know. So occasionally you get some kind of fungal or, you know, bacteria thing breeding in the water that's been condensed out somewhere in the HVAC system. Okay, and it smells bad. And if you don't like the smell, then it might be a good idea to deal with that with a bit of disinfectant. But Beyond that, I mean, you know, a dealer will keep selling you stuff until you say stop. And I'd suggest that unless your car has a problem, there's absolutely no point curing it. I know a lot of dudes, and this is a male weakness, a lot of dudes just sit there and go, oh, what about this? They do some web research and their car is like complete, it's just over there. Their car is just over there and it's completely asymptomatic. It's not missing a beat. And they're going, oh, I might have to might have to get some DPF cleaner and I might have to get some injector cleaner and I might have to get some intake cleaner and I might have to fit a catch can and I might have to I might have to do this and I might have to do that dude you don't need to do that okay like just chill about this stuff if your car demonstrates some symptom get it diagnosed deal with it otherwise just do the standard service items but I think 15,000 k's a year if you get 15 years and about 220,000 Ks, 225, 230, maybe 250, you are absolutely lucky. And of course, you can keep your car going for longer. It's just that 
its value is going like this. Its value is going to the briefly, gently down there on a glide slope to the Marianas Trench, and the repair cost of major items is going cruising altitude, right? That doesn't change. You need a new gearbox, it's not going to get any cheaper. And obviously, you can source one at a wrecker from time to time and things of that nature, but some things like injectors and high-pressure fuel pumps and things like that, they're just going to stay expensive. And eventually it gets uneconomical to repair your car. And you've kind of just got to run with it like that. Now, let us keep going. McChicken1087. Here's what disappoints me with that sort of name, okay? McChicken1087. In the internet world, there are some people who just don't want to stand behind their comments, and I think that's fundamentally gutless unless you've got a great reason to be anonymous, okay? Like, if you are a whistleblower and you're going to lose your job or whatever as a result of blowing the whistle, then, yeah, be anonymous, okay? But if, Or if you're going to be an asshole, then maybe you want to look in the mirror and say, is this who I really want to be, hiding behind a fake name, being an asshole in the comments? Like... For everybody else who's got an opinion and you want to punt it out there in some way, you don't think it might just diminish that opinion just a bit if if you call yourself McChicken1087. And look, the thing I find particularly disappointing about this is that 1,086 other people who are connected to the internet thought it was a good idea to call themselves McChicken. I don't... Sometimes I despair for the future of humanity, but I know why first contact keeps being delayed, you know, longer than the new Kia Sorento and new Hyundai Palisade. It's because aliens are looking at us and they're saying 1,087 people still think, homo sapiens, they still think it's a good idea to call themselves McChicken. So anyway, McChicken, now that I've trashed your fake name, let me answer your question. Diff breather kits to a four-wheel drive so water doesn't get into the diff. Initially seems like might be some benefit. However, when reading the instructions, the first step is to remove the OEM one-way valve. Yeah. Okay, so if you don't know what we're talking about, if you're going to do really, really deep water crossings and you know otherwise beat the wilderness to submission with your four-wheel drive wanking tractor, the thing you've got to realize is that the weighting depth is worked out on a bunch of criteria. And those criteria include not hydraulically locking your engine because hydro locking, it's not the sort of thing you fix at the roadside, okay? A hydro lock is when your air intake goes into the drink and instead of sucking air, your intake sucks water, okay? And when that happens, water's incompressible. So the first time you get a good fat inlet stroke of water into the cylinder and then the valve's closed, and the piston comes up and it's expecting to sort of gently jam itself into some nice compressible air and instead it hits some incompressible water, then there's just a quiet little tick like this and it's a replacement job. You need a new engine, okay? So in the domain of off-roading, hydro-locking, bad. But And that's the main reason people fit snorkels. Actually, the main reason people fit snorkels is just a friggin' fashion accessory. And they read the blurb from the manufacturers of the snorkels. And they include these bullshit, waffly marketing claims such as puts your air intake into cleaner air, which is bullshit. Have you ever driven behind someone towing a caravan on a dusty dirt road? The, the, the snorkel's only like this much higher than the standard air intake. 
the air is no cleaner up there than it is down here, just above the headlight or wherever the air intake is on your car or inside the guard, all right? And when you're driving along in clean air, then the air is clean, right? Because the dust is all behind you and it doesn't make any difference. And people who say it's sucking cooler air, it's only that much higher, dude. It's not cooler. It's cooler than two inches above the road, the black road baking in the sun. But by the time you're up here in this domain, it's all the friggin' same. And all these dudes who go, I get more power from the ram air effect. Well, you've... Dude, you've just increased the length of your inlet tract by about four feet. So I'd suggest that any ram air alleged benefit has been eroded by, you know, viscous flow friction against the walls of the snorkel and the number of different times that flow has to change direction on the way into your engine now that you've added this bend at the top and this bend in the middle at the garden, this bend at 90 degrees to go through the garden, then the bend at 90 degrees to get into the air intake. So there's that. Now, the breathers, okay? One of the other reasons there's a weighting depth on the specification sheet from the manufacturer is because, inconveniently, you can't seal gearboxes and diffs, okay? You can't seal them atmospherically. They can't be pressure tight because when they warm up, what would happen is they'd start pumping the lubricating oil out past the axle seals and the shaft seals in the case of the gearboxes, right? So where the shaft goes in from the engine of a gearbox and where the shafts go out of a transfer case forward and back and where the, uh, you know, the pinion is on the on the diff and where the axles come out of a diff, then there's seals there that stop the oil coming out. And if you pressurise the air by virtue of heating it up after driving your car for some time, it'll pump the oil out. So... They put breathers in, and the breathers just have a little one-way valve, and they let air, they let air come out. But there's not too much of a one-way valve there because they let the pressure come back in as well when things cool down. So when you drive into water that's deeper than the manufacturer recommends, if you manage to avoid hydro-locking your engine, you might also just quench the gearbox and the diffs, and that rapidly cools the steel case and rapidly cools the uh, air inside. And this is particularly the case if you get stuck, like if you get bogged, you're going to be in the water for some time. Water's got fantastic heat absorption properties, 4.2 kilojoules per kilo per degree C of heat that it absorbs. So it is just rock solid, one of the best chemicals at absorbing heat, which is why we use it in engines to cool them down. It transports a lot of heat out of there. And what's going to happen is it's going to suck water into your gearbox and diffs. And that's bad because water in oil, when you drive it through a gearbox or a diff, it emulsifies and goes a really nice cappuccino color. The only problem with that is it's fairly shit at lubrication. So if you're going to do that deep water stuff, have a look at yourself in the mirror and go, do I really need to do that to make my life complete? And if the answer, sadly, is yes, then extend the breathers, okay? And I'd follow the instructions if I was extending the breathers, but... Do you really need to go to that trouble? I'd ha- I'd have to suggest that nine out of ten people who go to all of that stuff, all of that trouble, they they're really not that good at off-road driving because you know, if you are modifying your vehicle to do that extreme stuff, then I take my hat off to you. If that's your recreation, go for it. To everyone else, I just suggest, dude, four-wheel drives 
factory spec are actually fairly capable. And what I'd suggest is the same as what I suggest for track driving, okay? Until you can exploit all of the performance potential of that vehicle on a track, off-road, whatever, don't modify it. Just give yourself software upgrade, ability upgrade, because that's the cheapest possible upgrade to the vehicle. It's also the best and it's transportable from vehicle to vehicle to vehicle. So just do that. That's how I would approach that uh, chicken dude. Now, we've got a Miss Peter here. Nice, I love the old Civics. I always try to give the chicks a play, but this just appears to be some sort of chat conversation of which I am not part. So let's just move on. Troy Jollymore now. Peter, to give you a laugh, years back on a turbo forum, kids were talking about exhaust restriction robbing power. They eventually thought that no turbo would give them more power and cause no restriction. Yeah, look, this is interesting, right? Like the way they used to do, I'm not sure how they do it now, but I was talking to the late Possum Born uh, rally champion here in Australia who sadly died while he was competing doing what he loved several years ago now. I was talking to him about um, power restriction in the Australian Rally Championship and the World Rally Championship, I think. And basically what they did was just uh, inlet air restriction. And I think that's brilliant, right? So if you put a restrictor, not unlike just a washer, in the inlet air um, pathway for all of the cars. And you say, you know what? The air must flow through this restrictor to get into your engine. And other than that, go nuts. I reckon that is a brilliant way to equalize all kinds of race formulas. Exhaust restriction, same thing. You know, go nuts, do what you want. Have whatever engine, have a million superchargers, right? But the exhaust has to flow through whatever. If you do that, great level playing field. And on a track, of course, the only other way to do it is to go, well, here's a control tyre. Go nuts, dudes. Do whatever you want. But the car has to run this rubber, you know. That's a pretty good way of restricting performance as well. And if you want uh, driver ability to, and team preparation, all of that stuff to matter more than who's got the biggest bucks, then that's a great way to keep racing affordable. I think you'd agree. So interested to hear what you have to say there. Uh, I got David Pack now. I'm stroking my beard. Had a Mazda 626 estate wagon, 2.2 litre auto, 340 thou before uh, accident wrote it off. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And you certainly can get big Ks on cars. Absolutely. The less time your car, the less, the fewer number of cold starts the longer your engine will last, all other things being equal. So if you're a big K driver, like let's say you do 50,000 Ks a year, which would be roughly three times the national average here in Australia, if you do that as a consequence of your job or you've got the commute from hell, you know, you've got to drive a long way to get to work and back, then your engine will probably last, <coughs> excuse me, three or four hundred thousand kilometres. But by the same token, it's only going to be eight or nine years until your car is just ready to be pensioned off. So it's not like it's not like you can really extend the time. You know what I mean? I, I think most cars are reasonably rooted or at least living on the knife edge by the time they're about 15 years old. And certainly, you know, you think back 15 years to what cars were like, and then you add the second law of thermodynamics, you know, for like 15 years on top of what they were like when they were brand new. And you got to say to yourself, well, do I really want to drive that? And look, 
if you don't have the funds to get a better car or it's not a priority for you, then hey, I'm sorry that you don't have the funds. You might probably want to address that. And if it's not a priority for you, then why are we even discussing it? Because obviously you like your car and I'm the last person to say, hey, you've got to live your life like this. But I would say the newest car is always the nicest one to drive. At least that's been my experience. And reliability's never been better. Performance has never been better per cubic inch of engine capacity. Refinement's never been better. Cars have never been quieter. They've never been able to do more. So when you look at it, like I'm talking in generalization here, and they've never been more affordable either. Like if you go back freaking 20 years, 25 years or something, a base model Toyota Corolla was about 20 grand, okay? And today it's about 20 grand. So if you were to buy the same amount of the same vehicle, like a Corolla, but with 25 years ago worth of spending power, then that car would be costing you, I don't know, 40 grand, 50 grand, something like that. And people bought them back then for the equivalent of $50,000 today. And I get, I've lost track of the people every week who tell me that new cars are so expensive. They're really not. They've never been more affordable in the context of average weekly earnings, which, let's face it, is the only thing that really counts. And I'm not suggesting you need to buy a new car. What I'm suggesting is that by objective measurement, by objective assessment, they've never been more affordable. Like using economics, which is almost a science, although every economist on earth will tell you it's actually harder than physics, to which I would say dickhead. Darren now. Darren Unpronounceable. Steinha says, John, I'm waiting for my new Triton to be built in Thailand and delivered in February slash March next year. Do you know if there are any current issues over there? COVID, of course, that could delay it even more. Darren, I think if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that anything's possible, mate. I don't have a crystal ball on that, but I haven't had too many complaints from people who I think Triton supply started to get pretty tight in about August, if memory serves. In fact, when I bought mine in June, that was pretty hard to find that. We had to dig pretty deep to find that Triton GSR, but I wanted a particular one. I wanted the tan leather and I wanted the graphite grey and I wanted the hardtop tonneau, which they fit afterwards. But They were starting to get scarce then, and by August or September, they were properly scarce. I haven't had too many people in the meantime, however, get back to me and say, look, they promised this in September, and now they're telling me it's January. So at the moment, I think you know, business as usual is is the way it is, you know, like, I think we can expect them to be pretty on the money with their projected delivery timeframe, barring some incredible, unforeseeable whatever in Thailand. I don't think that's going to happen. I actually think the supply of new cars is going to start freeing up towards the end of quarter one. And in quarter two of next year, I anticipate, you know, we'll be back to the way things used to be almost. So that'd be nice if you're in the market for a new car. And by the same token, that's going to impact people who are selling a car at the moment. So if you're going to punt a car into the used market, you should know that used car prices are pretty high right now. And that's not going to be the case when normal supply of new cars is resumed. Because 
that hike in used car prices is artificially sponsored, if you like, by the scarcity of new cars. People who have a car written off or something like that, they need a new car now. If they're told that they've got to wait for like three months or something, they go, ah, bugger that, I'll just buy a late model used car. And that kind of demand has spiked in the used car market and therefore so has the price of used cars. So you might win on the negotiation on a new car in quarter two, but the time to sell a car, if you're going to sell a car and not replace it, is probably now because these are unprecedented times for the pricing of used cars. And obviously, if you're trading a car in right now, you would want that price, uh, that that market dynamic, if you like, to be factored into the trade-in price the dealer offers you. And you want to do your research before you're sitting office at the dealer on a showroom floor because... They will screw you over on the trade-in if they think they can get away with it. So you've got to know what the fair value is, and it is absolutely up to you to do that research. Do not let the dealer do it for you, because clock on the wall, dude, it's always bullshit o'clock inside a car dealership. At least that's the risk. So moving on now to some other questions. Marcel Linden says, what is it worth, John, 1986 Mazda 626 diesel five-speed, only 520,000 kilometres, only on the clock, still gets 4.9 litres per hundred. Well, Marcel, to you, of course, it is priceless because you have found the one Mazda that does not succumb to the second law of thermodynamics. Yes! What a result. I always knew there'd be an exception. To anyone else, of course, the value is approximately zero, so... Given that it's so valuable to you and so worthless to the rest of us, hang on to it, dude. Now, Jason Robottom says the L300 4x4 was a great van. Are there any car companies going to produce something like them in the near future? Once again, Mr. Robottom, my crystal ball is down for the count. You know, it's down for repairs and I can't help you on that. I understand it's a real niche following for those sorts of things. And, you know, the closest thing I can think of is like an Iveco daily 4x4 with a van-style back on it. But that is a pretty specialist, huge and expensive thing, although they are awesome. I've always wanted a Terminator Judgment Day Iveco Turbo 4x4 as my daily driver. Like, I want an EV so that I can wear my green credentials on my sleeve, and I want my other car to be an Iveco Turbo 4x4, matte black with the bull bar, just awesome dual cab with the big GVM, the one that you need the special license for. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Iveco Turbo 4x4 and be properly amazed. I want to park anywhere, you know, even in spots that are already occupied, and I want to drive over the top of Land Cruiser 200 series parked in traffic in gridlock. I just want to low range. There's like 14 low ranges in that car. It's got like three low ranges and about 92 different gears, I think, something like that. And <laughs> I just want to drive over the top of a Land Cruiser 200 one day. And if they arrest me, then hey, worth it. Now, Peter Ossie, hypothetically, would cars in horse be cheaper? If we went to right-hand side of driving, as seems most of the world is right-hand driving now. Well, hypothetically, probably not, but 
we'd get more choice in cars and HSV, which is now called GMSV, would go out of business because they wouldn't have to. They call it remanufacture, but I call it right-hand drive convert, the Ram and the Chevy Silverado. And how would we get the money for it, dude? Like, where would that come from? Every intersection would have to be remade. The traffic lights would have to be remade. The signs would have to be remade. Every off-ramp on every freeway would have to be not only changed from side to side, but also reverse-engineered, you know, like literally mirror reverse-engineered. So it's just a pointless thought experiment that gets us nowhere. We are not going to be right-hand drive anytime soon. I mean, our dipshit politicians cannot even get in line with the rest of the world on emission standards for exhausts. And that's just like regulatory compliance. And you'd need to get out the 46 millimeter King Dick slogging spanner and beat the fuel industry into submission and say, just do it idiots just get the sulfur content in the fuel down to 10 parts per million like japan and china and india and the uk and america you know that's all they have to do just to get the emissions compliant the the car companies already have emissions compliant cars we just need fuel that will support that you know level of control of, of the engines and it's a done deal we don't need to remanufacture every friggin' intersection and freeway in the country. So when you get the emissions thing working out, Peter, just get back to me and we'll work on the right-hand drive conversion for Australia. We'd also have to work on the average car in Australia is nine years old and the people most disadvantaged by uh, phasing out those vehicles would be low socioeconomic group kind of people. In other words, society's most disadvantaged people. And I wouldn't want to see additional pressure on them to get rid of the cars that serve them well that are ageing, right? Just because some dipshit politician and Peter Ossie or someone decided that it might be a nice idea to get in line with the rest of the world so that new cars could be cheaper for the rich. I'm kind of funny like that, although I'm the most left-leaning, right-wing nutcase you've ever met. So there's those kinds of issues to consider. Uh, Tone now, inventor of the term Shemax for the Mazda BT-50. I still get a giggle out of that. Big Car made an excellent video explaining Sweden's changeover from right-hand drive to left-hand drive back in the 60s and why it'd be impossible to attempt a similar switch today. Big car, C-A-R. I must look that one up. It'd be interesting to check that out, actually, and see why it would be impossible today. But as I see it, it's all it's it's all impediments, you know, and no real benefit, you know. A lot of people say there's no such thing as a problem, just an opportunity. Well, I think that's a friggin' insurmountable opportunity, changing to right-hand drive, changing to left-hand drive cars driving on the right-hand side of the road like miracle. And so many other countries. Norman Morris now. John, thoughts on a decent used car for stop-start daily travel, doing roughly 100 k's across the day. Don't know how long I'll keep working, so not wanting new. Well, depends what you've got to carry, dude. Like uh, a Camry would be looking good. Like check out taxis. 
they're all hybrid Camrys for 100Ks a day, 500Ks a week, stop-start driving. Hybrid makes real sense for that. Or maybe hybrid Corolla or something of that nature, maybe a Hyundai Ionic plug-in hybrid or just the regulation hybrid, you know, the most affordable one in the range, something like that because that sort of driving, it's got hybrid written all over it, frankly. And uh, then if you don't work anymore, the hybrid probably has paid for itself. You probably find a decent uh, Corolla hybrid now, late model used, but there might be some significant competition for that at the auctions. I'd buy something like that at the auctions where you're really just up against a whole bunch of other car dealers and they kind of, the interest wanes when you get beyond the wholesale price and therefore you can jump in and just bid a few couple of thousand bucks higher than the dealers are prepared to go and you know a car like that fairly bulletproof safe to buy at auctions they have auctions all the time once a week i think for the, like fleets and things of that nature so if i wanted to do that kind of driving i'd probably look at something like corolla hybrid it's not a bad thing if you don't want to you know if you don't want to performance drive and just enjoy the shit out of that kind of stuff i'd do that victor bitter now I like Victor. He's a regular commenter in the pre-recorded part of my channel. Victor goes, uh, I hate it when his thing jumps all over the place. He was apologizing to me too. Sorry, g'day John. Sorry about yesterday's shit comment. No worries, Victor. We can all aspire to be better. And here's the thing, right? Like my challenge to you communicating online, not you, Victor, but you, out there, somewhere, wherever, watching this now, is at the moment, the default setting for discourse online tends to be assume the worst of everyone, right? Assume the worst possible position, the worst possible interpretation of someone's comments. If someone recommends, I don't know, a slogging spanner or a flashlight slash torch to you, then you can assume they're bent over and just doing it for the money right? You can do that. You can take the worst possible interpretation of their objectives and their motivation, or you can give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, I'd like to think that what I'm trying to do here is sort of trading on my reputation, if that's what you want to call it. But I do tend to be straight up and down when it comes to recommending or not recommending this and that black and white, like this is a good idea. That's a bad idea. And my reputation, such as it is, rests on that. And you can interpret what I say, how you see fit. That's a matter for you. But I'd suggest that if we all gave each other the benefit of the doubt, just a little bit more online and said, you know what? And I mean this to you, Victor, as well. Like, you know, if you get into me a little bit with a comment, then, hey, I'm sort of grown up enough to figure out that there's a greater dimension to Victor Bitter than just 20 words in a comment, right? And there, there are these filters in place as well. There's the filter of anonymity and there's the filter of getting away with saying the things that you uh, you actually think deep in your id, you know, whether where, where your emotions lie. Like, I don't know, human beings are very funny things when you think about how we interact with the world right because we've all got this reptilian brain that wants to go from yeah that's nice to i want to kill you kind of thing you know it's kind of bipolar and we've got this filtration of politeness over the top and i think politeness and diplomacy fulfills a very strong evolutionary need which would be that it's generally bad if someone says something and a three-foot razor blade comes out of its scabbard at the drop of a hat because it's just so offensive. And 
I've been in situations, I'm in situations every day where someone says something to me and I go, oh, Jesus. And I want to say a particular thing <laughs> and I end up playing thinks and says and I just say the exact opposite, right, for the sake of diplomacy. And most of us do that all the time. And I think in the comments, right, what we've done is we've eroded diplomacy to the point where it's unnecessary because we can hide behind the veil of anonymity and say what the fuck we want, right? And that's probably not a good way to do it, given, given that so much of discourse now takes place in this domain. You don't say things to people face-to-face -face that you say online, right? You just don't. You certainly don't talk to your workplace colleagues like that or your family, because if you did, things would be different. You wouldn't have a job and you'd be living alone, right? So I just think it'd be a nice idea to give each other the benefit of the doubt and not always assume the worst of the worst interpretation, the worst motivation of what somebody says when they're talking to you like I'm talking to you now or when they're talking to you in the comments, right? Because I'm not scripting any of this. I'm giving it to you off the top, off the top. And just like then, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say things that could have been worded differently, better, more uh, more diplomatically, whatever. Could just drive the point home better, better nuance, better directed, better on target, right? And we've got to assume that sort of thing about everyone and what they say online. And we don't always have fantastic days. Some of us have bad days and we say things that we later regret. That happens all the time as well. So benefit of the doubt, see if you can't trot out, even if you're hiding behind a, a fake name, see if you can't trot out the benefit of the doubt, you know, the better to raise the caliber of dialogue online. My challenge to you in the domain of making Australia less shit. Kind of important. You can do that. You can do that this afternoon. Let's move on. We'll go for a little bit longer now, another couple of minutes. We're coming up to about an hour. The N.W. Perry says, John, what is your opinion on the new EV tax in Victoria and South Australia? Also, don't forget EVs are good for city driving and 100 k's a day is not, that mu is not much with current range in modern EVs. That's absolutely right. A modern EV will do 100 k's a day, no problem, okay? And no tailpipe emissions, so great for air quality in the city and also good for fuel security, energy security in Australia. So for all of these reasons, EVs are a good idea. Not that economically rational, though, because of the huge price premium mainly paid for the battery, but also because partly uh, economies of scale are still poor for EVs. However, the taxing is like this. We haven't had the debate yet. You know, these assholes in government, mainly lawyers, they, they don't have a clue about the underlying scientific reality. They don't have, therefore, the ability to make uh, good policy decisions about what we're going to do for air quality and fuel security and what we're going to do about renewables and how we're going to roll them out and make uh, uh, renewable energy a real thing for the nation. And we could do that. But when every politician statistically is an asshole lawyer who's never done anything practical, it's very difficult to see a good debate happen and then good policy flow from that. Okay. And maybe I'm biased because I trained as an engineer, but when I see the wheels come off anything, when there's a problem with a nuclear power plant at Fukushima, or when there's a problem with a dam, or when there's a problem with keeping the lights on, 
You know, we don't get a bunch of politicians in the room. When Apollo 13 says, Houston, we've had a main bus B undervolt and we seem to be venting something into space. You know, Capcom doesn't say we need to get all the politicians here now. Sort this out. Get these men back to Earth. It doesn't happen like that, does it? We need the technical specialists to figure out the best policy. And then we need to implement policies around that that incentivize good actions and disincentivize bad ones. So to me, it just seems fucking ridiculous. What do I really think? It seems fucking ridiculous to tax EVs in South Australia. And now, of course, as I understand it, Victoria and New South Wales are going, oh, that's a fantastic idea. Let us do that. Let us draft some legislation now. Right? Like, Jesus Christ. Haven't had the debate yet. There's not enough EVs on the road currently for this to be any kind of windfall for the government. There's not any impact in fuel excise uh, to the government flowing from the number of EVs on the road this year or next year or the year after that or any year between now and 2030. Average car in Australia, nearly 10 years old, dude. Okay? So the tax is fucking ridiculous and it's based on knee-jerk reaction by asshole politicians who haven't got a good grasp of the status quo and to me that just seems like the worst possible way to implement any tax but hey call me old-fashioned I'd like to do the research first determine the policies next have a public debate and then implement the fuckers and everyone can suck it up what do I really think? And now, uh, let's move on. Shane Shane Heen now says, oh no, that's just a conversation. I'm not going to reiterate your chat conversation. Peter Roscoe, that's just a conversation too. Yang Sabo now says, hello, John. Hello, Yang. How should I put a ute on idle after driving it for 150 kilometres? I think he means how long. Yeah, how long should I put a ute on idle after driving it for 150 k's? Some people tell me that I can put it off after parking. I'm not just sure, though. Thank you for your response. Okay, Yang, here's how this works. If your engine has been working hard, and by working hard, I mean doing putting a lot of power down to the ground like climbing a big hill so if you've been down at the seaside or at a river and the last part of your drive is climbing up the side of a cliff or a mountain and getting to the top you know and parking somewhere with a view for a coffee or a lunch or something idle it for a couple of minutes i'd go for 90 seconds to two minutes in park on idle and that's because the turbo has been working really hard turbos get really hot they are energized by the really hot energetic exhaust flow quite close to the exhaust manifold that's what powers the turbocharger that gas is really hot typically you know six or seven hundred degrees c or something maybe 800 something like that and the turbo therefore runs really hot if you just turn the engine off at that point with the turbo hot It'll cook the oil inside the turbocharger housing. But if you idle the engine for a few minutes, you know, 90 seconds, something like that, many turbos have water flowing through them. They have a water jacket inside them. But even if not, 
just idling will allow cooler oil to pump through the turbo. The turbo will just spool for a while. It won't be being energized because there won't be hot energetic flow to do much powering of the turbo with the engine idling. And for all these reasons, it'll cool down to an acceptable level and you can just shut down. So two minutes, mate, that's enough. If you've just been on the highway though, and you've just been loping along on the highway, then your engine's not working that hard on the highway. Really light throttle inputs and just cruising. You know, it's low load driving. So not as much actual need to idle for a little while. And I'd suggest that if you stop your car and you select park and apply the handbrake and then you root around for the, t- the things that you typically root around for before getting out, like your phone, your wallet, a hat, sunglasses, whatever, and the kids are getting ready to jump out or your missus is getting ready to jump out, just leave the engine running with the air conditioning on until everybody's ready to jump out and then shut down and you'll be good to go with no threat of cooking the turbo. What happens, of course, over time is if you do these little incremental turbo cooks, you gum up the oil pathways and eventually you'll be driving down the road somewhere and the oil pathway will be properly gummed up. The turbo will not receive adequate lubrication and you'll kill it. And that tends to be an expensive fix. So something in the multiple thousand dollar range, which is a repair that you can sidestep just by servicing your car on time. And if you drive it hard, service it twice as often. So if you've got a 12 month, 15,000 kilometer service interval, knock it back to six months and seven and a half if you drive it hard or if you do lots of cold starts things of that nature and then just do that idling before shutdown like I just said so look we've been going for a little bit more than an hour now and that's enough for me I'm sure it's enough for you the boss will be looking at you before too much longer while you're you know allegedly working from home and going why has he not called any of our customers why has he not done that where is that email I requested and I don't want to bear the burden of you having that sit-down chat where you have to practice the diplomacy that we discussed earlier. But I do thank you sincerely for joining me on this live stream. I will not be going live tonight at 8.30 p.m. if you're a regular for that because that's been an unmitigated disaster owing to broadband network congestion in this area at that time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to you live more frequently at lunchtime. I'm also going to be thinking about doing something And that breakfast sort of drive to work window of opportunity during the day when internet demand is low here and there might be a captive audience of sorts vis-a-vis you out there willing to listen without whom, of course, there's no point doing this. So anyway, thank you very much for your company. It's Thursday, the 26th of November. The time now here in the knee of Sid. 2.35 and that's it for me until next time more packages pre-recorded throughout the week more live streams too the best way to get yourself notified about all of them is of course subscribe and hit the bell notification icon thingo and then youtube will stalk you endlessly wherever you are logged in whenever i go live enjoy the rest of the day i'll talk to you soon